It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an iHeart Original. So picture this. It's early January 1696. It's cold and wet. You're cold and wet. You're in London, close to the Thames, where the narrow streets are filthy and prone to flooding. You decide to head to a coffee house for a nice, warm dish of coffee. Yes, it is a dish. You approach the bar and the woman behind it. A dish of coffee goes for about a penny, but pennies, really all silver coins, are in short supply these days. So what are you going to pay with? You plunge your freezing fingers into your pocket. If you're a woman, this pocket is a little pouch tied to your waist, and if you're a man and you're fashion forward, it's sewn into your clothes. But let's be honest, you're definitely a man if you're going to a coffee house because most ladies weren't permitted. You pull out a silver penny. An old, busted, hand-hammered silver penny. Made before the restoration of the monarchy some 30-odd years prior. You place your penny on the counter, nervously. The coffeehouse maid eyes it, suspiciously. She picks it up, testing the weight in her hand. It's a little bit thin, the edges look worn. From what she can tell, the king on it has been dead for more than half a century. Is she going to accept it? Given where we are in time, there's a very good chance that she won't. So why would the coffeehouse maid reject your busted penny? Money's money, right? Well, yes and no, because right about now, that's a bigger question than you might think. And it's one that will dictate not only the career of Isaac Newton, but also William Challoner. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law, an iHeart original podcast. You took the silver, you took the silver. 
episode two, No Silver Linings. Act one, for what it's worth. The coffee house made might not take your coin because it's so degraded. But the fact was, in early 1696, most of the coins being traded throughout the country were degraded. England's currency is in crisis. You'd know that if you spent a lot of time in coffee houses, because these are places where people talk. And one of the things people were definitely talking about was the ongoing problems with the coinage. It is a terrible thing when a man cannot purchase a dish of coffee for want of coin. I blame the mint. Verily, these thin-worn coins. Shopkeepers refuse them. And one can barely discern between counterfeit and those justly made. There are rumors that Parliament and the Treasury and the Mint are all planning to do something about it. But as yet, they haven't. So while everyone holds their breath and waits for whatever the government decides, the status of your particular coin hangs in the balance. The coffeehouse maid can decide that your coin is simply too busted and turn you down. But then that means she's missing out on a sale. Or she can accept a coin that is possibly worthless, or at least worth less. So say she does accept your battered coin, maybe against her better instincts, and you get your dish of coffee. You settle down at a table, there are a couple of newspapers and gazettes and pamphlets around, and you listen to the chatter. I have heard that Dr. Isaac Newton is to be the warden of the Mint. Indeed. I do hope he shall have more to do with the affairs of the Mint than the last warden. Okay. What was going on with the coinage? Well, we are going to get into that big time because it's the reason for this whole shebang. But we're going to first put that question on hold. And we're going to start with another question. What actually is a coin? At its most basic, a coin is money, a representative way to store value. We can exchange that value for other things, goods and services. So money is a medium of exchange, a way to facilitate trade or purchasing. And from way back in the day, metal was ideal for this representative exchange function because it was something that most people agreed had inherent value. It was easily transferable. It was durable. And it was easily divisible, unlike, say, a cow. Metal coins date back to around 600 BC with the Lydians, people in what's now Turkey. Minting started in Britain in the second century BC with the various Celtic tribes, and then in a more regular way with the Romans. There was a mint in London dating from the third century, but then the Romans left and London went through a kind of wild adolescence. But by the time of Alfred the Great, the ninth century Anglo-Saxon ruler who really laid the groundwork for the unification of England's various sovereign states, there was a working mint in the city churning out the kingdom's coins. By the 17th century, England's monetary system was based on a bimetallic standard, high denomination gold coins and lower denomination silver coins. And the coins derived their value from the actual weight of the gold or silver they contained. A penny, for example, was worth a penny 
because that was the value of the 24 grains of silver it contained. Because unlike today, where we have coins and we, you know, we just hand them over, the coinage in the 1680s, 1690s relied on its weight in silver to give it its value. That's Chris Barker, historian at the Royal Mint. As in, the same Royal Mint that Alfred the Great started back in the 9th century, and the one that Newton becomes warden of in the 17th century, and that still makes our coins now, in the 21st century. Anyway, value based on weight seems very logical. But here's the problem. By the 1690s, many, many of the coins in circulation, like your busted penny, did not contain the amount of silver their face value promised they did. So if you had a coin that was reduced in weight because it had silver removed from it, it had lost some of its value. And you could go to a shop and try and buy a shilling's worth of goods with a a worn, battered, degraded shilling. The shopkeeper isn't going to take that at shilling's value because he can see it's lost weight. So it has a huge problem from an economic perspective that you're affecting trade. So yeah, you're lucky you got that coffee. But why wouldn't your penny contain those 24 grains of silver? After all, isn't it the job of the Royal Mint to make sure that it did? Well, yes, but in the 1690s, several long simmering problems had just come to the boil. For a start, many of the coins were so degraded because the vast majority of those coins were hand hammered. Hand hammering was how coins had been made for pretty much as long as there had been coins. This was an imprecise process. Coins were never each quite the same. The engravings were often off-center. The edges weren't milled, meaning they didn't have the finish or the grooves that you see on modern coins. This irregularity meant that they degraded or looked degraded more easily. And some people, a lot of people, took advantage of this. The easiest and perhaps most damaging way people messed with the coinage was clipping. People would trim off a tiny amount of metal around the edge of the coin, then hammer the coin thinner to make up the size. And then they'd gather up all those tiny silver shavings, combine them, and melt them down into bars or ingots and sell those off. This was free money. And it was easy to get away with because it was difficult to tell a coin that was intentionally clipped from one that was just old. Everybody was degrading the coinage because it was in such a poor state anyway. And so once you get a majority of people doing it, it's, it, it sort of takes away the stigma of doing something illegal, particularly when it's being done by respected bankers, shopkeepers. People were just doing it on a regular basis. It sounds almost trivial. What's a little off the edges? But this was a tremendous problem because, again, it degraded the actual value of the coin in your hand. In 1695, philosopher John Locke wrote... I do not see how, in a little while, we shall have any money or goods at all left in England, if clipping be not immediately stopped. Clipping is a great leak which for some time past has contributed more to sink us than all the forces of our enemies could do. Some, Locke and Newton included, even suspected that foreign powers were trimming English money just to sink the nation that much faster. The terrible state of the hand-hammered coins also meant that they were easier to counterfeit using less valuable materials. You didn't even have to do a very good job. Well, if you can imagine what you're trying to counterfeit is nothing except a very, very 
badly worn blank disc with some vague images on it that's over a century old incredibly easy because you don't have to be a very good artist you don't have to be a very good engraver you can knock up some incredibly substandard dies and you can put something out there that very easily resembles a battered worn shilling you know sixpence or half crown that was a, a, over a century old it wasn't that difficult Counterfeiting and clipping often went together. Sometimes clippers would melt down all those little slivers of silver to use in counterfeiting new coins. Clipping was so widespread that counterfeiters often clipped their own fakes to make them seem more authentic. And counterfeiting? Well, counterfeiting was so rampant that some estimates claimed that one out of every 10 coins in circulation was fake. That was super bad for people at all levels of English society, from the Chancellor of the Exchequer to the butcher, baker, and candlestick makers, not to mention the 17th century baristas. Silver was the lifeblood of the economy. This is what everyone would have used to pay for daily expenses. If there wasn't enough of it to go around, or if what there was was debased and distrusted, costs rose astronomically, economic life ground to a halt. The thing was, it didn't have to be this way. The Mint had a solution right there in its workshop. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love 
into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act Two. Monsieur Blondeau and his marvelous machines. Peter Blondeau was an engineer at the Paris Mint when he was noticed by England's parliament in 1649. How and why he was noticed, I don't know. But the important part is that the Treasury Committee believed that Blondeau had worked on improving the French coin, specifically with using these new machines to mill, press, and edge coins and that he could be persuaded to come to England. This was a year of massive political upheaval. Charles I was beheaded by the parliamentarians, ending the monarchy. Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan general, became Lord Protector of the newly made Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Wales. And he also canceled Christmas. The change in regime necessitated a change in coins. After all, in addition to being a medium of exchange, coins are also an easily disseminated reminder of who's in charge. Blondeau was invited by Parliament's Mint Committee to demonstrate his milling and edging technique in 1650. That year, after showing his very fine pieces to the committee, Blondeau published a pamphlet, a bit of propaganda, describing the benefits of his machinery. A humble representation of Peter Blondeau. Followed by another... A most humble memorandum from Peter Blondeau. Spoiler alert. These were not humble. Blondeau started by pointing out everything that was wrong with hand-hammered coins. The money coined with the hammer cannot be made exactly round, nor equal in weight and bigness, and is often grossly marked, and hath many other faults which gives a great facility to the false coiners to counterfeit it also to the clippers to clip it, it being very hard to discern between a clipped piece and one not clipped. Blondeau, as the Treasury knew, had a better way. Milled coinage was a German invention dating as far back as 1550. Instead of hammering an image into a blank coin, milled coining used a screw press to sink the engraving deep into the metal. The innovation was brought to France, where the mechanism was improved and adopted by the engineers at the Paris Mint. The machines produced regularly sized and weighted coins with precise images, which made them more difficult to counterfeit. But Blondeau's edging technique was the real star, allowing him to put a grooved finish or even a phrase on the edges. This would make a coin nearly impossible to clip without detection. Blondeau wasn't the first to introduce these machines to the Royal Mint. However, previous attempts had largely failed. And you can chalk that up to a few things. The cost of setting up and running the new machines was considerable, and they were rumored to break down easily. There was also the English distrust of anything foreign, especially French. But perhaps more significantly, there was the fact that the Company of Moneyers, a more or less hereditary union-slash-guild, had had the exclusive contract with the Mint to produce the coins for centuries. But in 1650, the new Commonwealth needed new coins, and the Treasury was willing to give Blondeau a chance. 
the Moneyers, for obvious reasons, were not. It didn't help that Blondeau not only wanted their job and claimed that they were rubbish at it, but he also accused the Moneyers of corruption. In his pamphlets, he alleged that the hammered coin fresh from the mint was of disparate weights and that this was intentional. And it was the poor, he said, who suffered for it. Which turns to the great ruin and destruction of commerce and undoes those poor people who spend their money little by little. Blondeau was essentially accusing the moneyers of serious corruption, of fraud. This really pissed them off, of course, and they came back with a pamphlet of their own. A most humble remonstrance for Peter Blondeau. Also not humble, the moneyers responded that Blondeau couldn't do anything that they couldn't already do, branded him a liar, and slammed him for daring to claim that the money they made was ill-favoredly coined. Blondeau, they said, not only maligned the good name of the company of moneyers, but also most falsely to imprint in the hearts and minds of all people in Christendom, and more especially the good people under the obedience of the Parliament of England, that the monies of this commonwealth are not justly made. Blondeau was undermining not only English confidence in the currency, but global confidence in it as well, with his... False and scandalous libels. In 1651, the Treasury decided to settle the matter with a competition, a money off. Treasury officials said, fine, each of you design and make a half crown, a shilling, and sixpence coin, and we'll see which ones are better. David Ramage, the provost of the moneyers, was their champion. Provost was an elected position, meaning that Ramage was a man of some reputation and power. And now, in the great money off of 1651, this reputation, and the reputation of the company, and its contract with the Mint, was on the line. I mustn't fail. Damn that Frenchman's blood. Ready, set, money make. Bramage made the coins in the way that they always had, using a hammer in his own hands. He placed the planchette, the blank coin, on the anvil die. I must get the alignment perfect. There. Holding the top die in place, he swung the hammer, bringing it down on the die and stamping the image into the metal. <coughs> One done. <coughs> Two. <coughs> Three. Blondeau and his team, meanwhile, got his machines rolling. One, two, three. Ten seconds remaining. By the end of the allotted time, Ramage had made 12 coins. 12 coins that were a bit wonky, that didn't quite look all the same. 12 coins that looked like most of the money passed throughout the kingdom. Which is to say, not great. Blondeau, meanwhile, made 300 coins. 300 perfectly weighted, regularly sized coins of impeccable quality and design, complete with a lettered edge that no clipper could clip. 
On the half-crown piece, it read, Truth and Peace, 1651, Peter Blondus, Inventor Fesset. That's Latin for he made. Congratulations to Monsignor Blondo and his marvelous machines. Ramage failed. Blondo won. But despite the fact that Blondo's machines were clearly superior, the Treasury passed on them. They just couldn't afford it. After all, it takes money to make money. But then, a stroke of luck. The English fleet captured a load of Spanish treasure at the Battle of Cadiz in 1656, and suddenly, the Commonwealth was able to pay for Blondeau and his machines. But then, Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell's death in 1658 more or less ended the protectorate experiment, and it left Blondeau without, well, a protector. He shipped his machinery off to Edinburgh and himself back to France. And he would have stayed there too had it not been for the terrible quality of the coins minted for the Restoration King, Charles II. Blondeau was invited back in 1662 and this time given a 21-year contract. The moneyers might even have gotten to keep their jobs too because these machines still needed skilled men to run them. So the monarchy's back, Blondeau's back, and Christmas is back too! Huzzah! Things should have been good, right? Well, not so much. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act 3. Biting the Silver Bullet. In 1663, Samuel Pepys, the famous diary writer, a guy who was everywhere in the 17th century, toured the Mint's facilities. This was just after Blondeau set up shop. Some of the machines were meant to be secret, but Pepys was a man who knows some people. He later becomes one of Newton's closest friends. We were shown this method of making new money from the beginning to the end, which is so pretty. They say that this way is more charged to the king than the old way, but it is neater freer from clipping or counterfeiting. The putting of the words upon the edge is not to be done without an engine of the charge and noise that no counterfeiter will venture upon. And it employs as many men as the old, and speedier. For the next 30 years, the Mint used these machines to make the coins, when they made the coins, which wasn't an all-the-time kind of thing. If you want a sense of what made Peeps so giddy, listen to Chris Barker describe how they worked. The mint will get the raw bullion coming in and then they will melt down the gold and silver and they will cast them out into thin strips to get them to the correct thickness for coining. The next part of the process is you put them through a machinery which actually blanks them. So you're getting the blank discs out of that strip of metal and they'll be weighed to make sure that they're the correct weight and then you've got a, a sufficient blank ready for processing you will end up striking the coin using something uh, called screw press, a ginormous T-shape. The blank was sandwiched between the dies, which carried the images. One was on the end of the T and one was on the anvil. Two strong men would turn the screw press, squishing the blank in between. The, the, the person you've got to reserve your sympathy for is the gentleman who's doing the putting of the blanks on and flicking the finished coin all, all on and off because they've had their fingers crushed repeatedly by having several tons descend on them as they're trying to put blanks on and flick finished coins off. Finally, you get a, a finished coin after that striking process. The smaller coins had a milled, grooved edge, and the larger coins had a phrase, decus et tutamen, which was Latin for a decoration and a safeguard. Fun fact, this phrase was on the coins until 2017, when the new pound coin was introduced. And the machines did do what Blondeau promised they would. It was harder to clip a machine-milled coin, and it was harder to counterfeit them. And yet... Clipping and counterfeiting persisted. In fact, they got worse. Why? Because the Treasury never recalled the old hand-hammered coins. Honestly, it is exactly like the scene in Poltergeist when Craig T. Nelson is all, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? And just like in Poltergeist, the old coins caused all kinds of problems. 
This basically left two sets of coinage in the country, the good new machine-milled coins and the bad old hand-hammered coins, and both were legal tender. Silver was still being clipped off the old coins and much the time leaving the country to be sold elsewhere. Counterfeit coins flourished because your basic coiners could still do a brisk business knocking out messy hand-hammered coins. Meanwhile, some clever few, like William Challoner, had figured out how to fake these supposedly unfakeable coins. Compounding the problem, people, merchants especially, tended to hoard the good coins. Chris Barker. You've got these brand new, lovely, regular coins. What are you going to do if you're um, a normal individual who sees these coming into, coming into them through the banks and through their change? You're not going to use and spend those brand new coins. You're going to hoard them because you know they have a good value. So if you're slightly unscrupulous, what you'll do is you'll melt down the good coins because you know exactly the weight, you know exactly the fineness. You can create bullion, which you can then sell onto the continent at a profit. The price of silver had recently gone up in some markets, meaning that silver was worth more as bullion, the raw metal basically, in continental Europe than it was as face value coins in England. This is what's called arbitrage, which is basically exploiting the difference in price commodities fetch in different markets for a profit. So English silver is being sold for continental gold, leaving only the bad, old, degraded coins in the hands of the people. And by the 1690s, it was estimated that only one out of every 200 coins was a machine-milled coin. The rest were old and busted and below weight or just straight-up fake. What all of this added up to, the clipping, the counterfeiting, the arbitrage markets, was that there was a serious shortage of silver. And the longer the old coins stayed in circulation, the longer clippers and coiners stayed in operation. And the supply of silver coins? perpetually shrank. By now, the stock of real silver coins from the pennies to the crowns had dwindled almost to the point of extinction. That might explain why the coffeehouse maid took your penny. She didn't know when she'd see another. The situation became more problematic after the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, which removed the Catholic King James II from the throne and put his Protestant daughter Mary and her husband, the Dutch Prince William of Orange, on it. The new regime needed new coins. These are a representation of royal authority and royal power. Even back then, still for a lot of people in rural areas, the only sort of representation that they would have of the monarchy. You want to have this image of um, authority coming across by your coinage. Not you don't, you don't want to be represented at home and abroad by a coinage that is in such poor condition that you can barely stand muster. But it wasn't just about how things looked. Again, the coin is the representation of the monarch. If it's busted, folks might start wondering if the monarchy is busted too. If you go boil it back down to the basics, think about what a coin is and why we actually have any designs on a coin at all. The design is on there to show that this piece of metal, this this piece of silver, is of a given value and a given weight, and it has royal approval. You know, it's got the seal of, of royalty on it, therefore you know you can trust it and you know you can accept it. And this gets us to the heart of what a currency really is. Trust. It's an agreement. At this moment in history, it's an agreement that this shilling weighs this amount of silver because the king or queen or really parliament says it does. 
The marks on the coins were a shorthand for the value they represented, but also represented the authority that guaranteed that value. So if the people don't trust the currency, if the people can't agree that this penny is worth a dish of coffee, then the people have a problem. And the government has an even bigger problem. This is also why the punishment for counterfeiting or clipping was so severe, public disemboweling and head on a spike severe. These were socially and economically destabilizing crimes that hacked at the authority of the government. In 1695, William Lowndes, the Secretary of the Treasury, wrote to the country's brightest thinkers to ask them what to do, including Isaac Newton, who was still lecturing to the walls up in Cambridge. Economics, as a discipline, hadn't really been invented yet, so Lowndes was casting his net pretty wide for solutions. Newton, like pretty much everyone else, had the same answer. Recall all the old, bad coins, make them no longer legal tender, and remint them. Duh! Newton also suggested that the Treasury make the intrinsic and extrinsic values of the money the same. The intrinsic value of the coin was its value on the market. The extrinsic was the face value. By making those the same and reducing the silver content and devaluing the currency in the short term, it would keep people from being able to make money off melting it down and selling it in another market. But Parliament didn't agree to that kind of currency manipulation, although they probably should have. You go too far, Newton. Too far. Anyway. It shouldn't have taken Newton, philosopher John Locke, architect Sir Christopher Wren, East India Company governor Sir Josiah Child, and a bunch of other prominent people to convince Parliament. But it sort of did. In late 1695, Parliament finally agreed. So gone are all these uh, medieval thin pieces and instead replaced with, you know, shiny new, thick, machine-struck coins that look magnificent. That's that's what they decided to go for with the great recoinage of 1696 to 1698. It was going to be expensive, very expensive. Because of how degraded the coinage was, it would take three old coins to make two new coins. The treasury would need to make up that lost silver from somewhere, and it's not like England had a ton of silver mines kicking around. Not to mention, England was also broke. Like, invent the national debt broke, but more on that later. In addition to fighting an expensive war with France, one of the knock-on effects of the silver shortage was that people tended to pay their taxes in bad coin. This meant that the treasury was being shorted, taking in coin that didn't weigh as much as its face value said it did, and therefore wasn't worth as much. But the recoinage was the only way to stop the loss of silver from the country, confound the coiners and clippers, William Challoner among them, and shore up the country's fledgling financial institutions. Parliament passed the Recoinage Act on January 21st, 1696, and the melting commenced the very next day. But if anyone thought that this whole thing was going to be easy, and based on the way Newton was offered the warden gig, at least some people did, well... Nothing considerable coined of the new and now only current stamp cause such a scarcity that tumults are every day feared. Join me next time on Newton's Law to find out exactly how Isaac Newton, that prickly genius, saved England. Basically. 
Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy, with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Voice acting in this episode by Robbie Jack. Special thanks to Chris Barker. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatekudur and Finiflex Sound Studios. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Emily. Bye. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.